already feel heartstrings being pulled on. I feel walls starting to crumble. I believe God has something to say to us today. Can I just say this praise team does an excellent job of helping us to prepare our hearts to hear what God wants to say to us each week. And I noticed a new face up here today, and that's just awesome. So, anyway, I want to thank you all for, for being open and willing to, to lift your voices and to lift your hearts to the Lord and just say, God, here I am, speak to me. And I believe He's going to do that today. Well, before we get into the message itself, I want to start with a quick poll, all right? So we'll just do this by show of hands. Uh, how many of you all here are creatures of habit? You always do things the exact same way every time. Is that anybody here? For the most part, you like to do everything the same way every time. All right, how many of you are more free spirits? You, you hunger for new experiences, like I'll try anything once. Any free spirits in the room? All right, well... You know, part of that is just how we're wired as human beings. Some of us are more comfortable stretching ourselves and, and trying something different. Some of us are more like, well, I want to make sure I do things the same way. My mother is famous for picking out one thing that she likes to eat at a restaurant, and then that's the only thing she will order there. And so you'll say, well, do you want to go to Outback today? And she'll say, no, I don't want chicken. Well, they have more than just chicken at Outback, but that's the only option if she goes there. And so, you know, we can all relate to that. We get stuck, in, and sometimes we're just like, no, this is what I know. This is comfortable. This is what I'm going to do. But uh, that's not always the way life works. And whether you are one of those creatures of habit where you do everything all the same, or whether or not you crave those new adventures, those new experiences, there can still be a resistance when we come up against some change in our life, change that is forced on us rather than something that we choose. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about change. Now, this resistance to change is a very natural thing. It, it, it's normal because we understand and we know the old ways, and we don't know what it's going to look like on the other side. So it's very natural and normal for us to say, I don't want it to change. I'm comfortable with how it is. I have figured out how to live and to operate in this setting. I don't know what that's going to look like, so I don't even want to go there. I don't want to think about that. That kind of resistance is normal. And if you look back through history, you can find multiple examples of that. I mean, just go back to the Industrial Revolution. You had the Luddites versus the capitalists. And the Luddites thought, if you introduce this steam-powered machinery into our factories, we're all going to be out of jobs. So what did they do? They got their, their torches and their pitchforks, and they went down there and they smashed those steam engines. They said, you're not going to take my job. That's a natural response. Uh, another example would be during the American Revolution. Things were getting hot and things were, were getting difficult. You know, uh, Britain was taxing the Americans and they had no way of addressing that with the king and of saying, hey, listen, you're not being fair to us. And so you had America that was very divided. In fact, if you look at the demographics, they, they say that there were far more loyalists in the American colonies than there were revolutionaries during the, the, during the American Revolution. But the ones who said this is not right, they were fighting upstream they had to convince the loyalists and say hey listen i know you're loyal to the king i know you consider yourself a, a member of the british empire but it's not working for us and we've got to do something different and so there was resistance there that had to be overcome 
the same way in the Civil War. You know, uh, people looked at America. They saw the way that African Americans were being treated. They saw that they weren't being given the same liberties, the same freedoms, the same uh, protection under the law. And they said, this isn't right. We've got to make a change. And of course, the people in the South said, we can't change. This is how we've built our whole life. This is what our economy's built on. We can't do that. And so there was resistance there in that change. In the 1920s, America decided, we're going to have an experiment. We're going to create this policy called prohibition. We're going to outlaw all alcohol. And that led to some resistance from, you know, the, the mobsters and the bootleggers versus Kevin Costner and Sean Connery. I mean, the law enforcement people. But, but either way, you know, there was that resistance to the change because this is how we've always done it. You can't come in and here and tell me what I have to do. But many times that, that reaction, that response, is rooted in fear. It's fear of the unknown. It's fear of what happens if I don't like it. And so even though it is a natural response to feel that resistance, we have to learn how to be comfortable with the change and the transition that comes to us in life because there's really no way to stop that. So the title of our message today is that we're going to talk about how do we face transition with faith from a position and a posture of faith. Now, many times in our language, we use these terms change and transition interchangeably. We'll, we'll say the same thing, but there is a difference if you really break it down and look at the definition of these two terms. Change refers to the external or situational alterations that occur in a person's life, organization, environment or any other context so these are the external things that change in your life it could be as simple as the weather it could be as simple as you're a little bit older today than you were yesterday it could be entering a new phase of life these are things that are external to us now transition on the other hand is an internal psychological and emotional process where individuals go through it and they come to terms and they adapt to the changes that have happened to them See, we're not in control of the change. The change is going to come whether or not. What we are in control of is how do we transition? How do we get our mind in, in, in the mindset of saying, okay, this is the new normal. This is the new situation that I'm facing. This is the new path I'm going to have to walk down. So how do I position myself to do it well? How do I get my internal state to match my external circumstances? Change by, by its very nature, it's often tangible, it can be observed and measured. Changes can be structural, they can be procedural, they can be situational. There are things on the outside that you can look and you can say, that's different. You know, As simple as a couple weeks ago we came in and, and the front of the stage looked different. This is still your church, but you walk through the door and you're like, something's different in here. That's a change. And for those of you who weren't up here helping us, that was out of your control. <laughs> you know, we either did a good job on the change or not. You know, but the change happened no matter what. What now we have to do is learn how to accept this. Do I like it? Do I not like it? Am I going to complain if I don't? Or am I going to just say, you know what, maybe I'll give myself some time. Maybe I'll get used to it. So uh, change is something on the outside. Transition is more subjective. It in involves your internal adjustments, your thoughts, and your feelings that accompany change. And, you know, I get it, men. We're not really comfortable dealing with feelings, but we have to. It's part of who we are. God made us to have emotions. And so sometimes the emotions are negative. Sometimes we don't like it, but we have to learn how to walk through it properly. Change can be instantaneous. Uh, it's more immediate. It can happen very quickly. You can think about something like you could be in a car accident and immediately your life has changed. 
Or you could walk into your job and you think this is just going to be a normal Friday. And then your boss calls you in the office and says, hey, we're downsizing and I hate to do it, but you're the one. Your number got called. So starting next week, you're going to have to find a new job. And, you know, you weren't in control of that. You weren't anticipating that. You just walked through a door and all of a sudden your life has changed in one way or another. Transition, though, takes time. It varies from person to person. Some of us adapt and, and we overcome very quickly. We're like, you know what? I can roll with the punches. I can take this. This is no big deal. Um, but for others of us, or, or maybe it's just the situation, it takes a little more time to get ourselves to where we can really accept and say, okay, God, what are you doing here in my life? What, how do I respond to this situation? How do I do so in a godly way rather than lashing out or being angry or becoming self-destructive or doing things that will be harmful for me rather than setting me up to succeed as I walk further down the path? So change can be that immediate thing. Transition takes a little time. Most people don't like change because it forces us to transition. Right? We didn't choose that external circumstance, that external change that happened. And so sometimes we're just not ready to do that. And if you want a clear example of that, think how powerful nostalgia is. We think about the way it used to be, the good old days. Think, you remember when this happened, or you remember when we would go here? You remember when that church service where, you know, the spirit was just falling and we were hucking and bucking and spitting and spinning and doing all the things, you know, and, and we say, man, that was awesome. Let's go back to that. But here's the thing. God doesn't want you to live on that old experience. He wants to do new things in you. And so we can't have that backward focus. We have to be looking forward. Another example is that we resist making changes. You know, some of us as parents, as we see our kids go from little tots to bigger tots to, okay, now you got a mouth on you to now you're an adult, you know, that's, that's a hard transition to make. And sometimes we resist that. We say, no, you're still my little baby, you know. That's why your grandma still comes up and pinches your cheeks and it doesn't matter that you're 47, you know. <laughs> she still sees that little baby. We resist these changes. Um, another thing is adapting to new technologies. How many of us have said, I don't care if they're out to, to, up to an iPhone 47. I like my iPhone 3. I know how it works. It doesn't hold a battery charge, but this is my phone. I like it. But that's the thing. We don't, it's hard sometimes to adapt to changes. And think about how long it takes you to get comfortable with the new normal. Any of us who have moved to a new city or any of us who have transitioned from one job to another, maybe you got changed your work schedule, you shifted from being a third shifter to a first shifter. It takes you a while to adapt to that new way of living, that new way of doing things. And so here's the thing that we need to understand today. This is the bottom line for our message today is that change is inevitable, but it is possible to face the transition with faith. Now, in this series, we've been looking at how God used Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. You know, it was a military campaign. When they got to the promised land, there were already people living there. And so if they were going to take that land that God had promised to Abraham and had promised to Isaac and had promised to Jacob, if they were going to live into that promise that had been given to them, they were going to go and have to do the work to make sure that they say this land belongs to us. There would be people who would fight and die in battle. There would be families who would have to uproot and move themselves. And so, you know, it was something that they had to adjust to. Now, today we're looking at the end of Joshua's life to see how he prepared the people of Israel for the leadership change that was about to, to take place. The change was not optional. As we'll see later on, at this point, Joshua was 110 years old. 
He had a good long life, but eventually that life is going to end. And so he can't lead the people of Israel forever. So he wanted to make sure that he prepared them for not only the change that was coming, but the internal transition that would have to occur as well. So if you have your Bibles today and you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Joshua 23. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now, don't freak out. It's only about 16 verses, right? Uh, but I'll be using the New Living Translation if you've got those fancy digital Bibles and you can flip and flop. But we're going to read through this real quick. And I want you to just listen and hear these words that are coming from Joshua. This is someone who has had years of experience of working alongside and learning from Moses. And then we see where he had stepped into his own leadership role and had led the people of Israel. So here he comes to the, to the, the people of Israel, to their leaders, and he's saying, listen, let me give you some parting wisdom because I'm about to leave. I'm about to go be with the Father. But you're going to have to continue on, so let's prepare for that. All right, let's read. In uh, verse 1 it says, The years passed, and the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. Joshua, who was now very old, called together all the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officers of Israel. He said to them, I am now a very old man. That's pretty obvious. You have seen everything the Lord your God has done for you during my lifetime. The Lord your God has fought for you against your enemies. I have allotted to you your homeland, uh, as your homeland all the land of the nations yet unconquered, as well as the land of those that we have already conquered, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. This land will be yours, for the Lord your God will himself drive out all the people living there now. You will take possession of their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. So be very careful to follow everything that Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Do not deviate from it, turning either to the right or to the left. Make sure that you do not associate with the other peoples still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done until now. For the Lord has driven out great and powerful nations for you, and no one has yet been able to defeat you. Each one of you will put to flight a thousand of the enemy, for the Lord your God fights for you just as he has promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away from him and cling to the customs of the survivors of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry with them, then know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land. Instead, they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip for your backs and thorny brambles in your eyes, and you will vanish from this good land the Lord your God has given you. Soon I will die, going the way of everything on earth. Deep in your hearts you know every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. But as surely as the Lord your God has given you the good things He promised, He will also bring disaster on you if you disobey Him. He will completely destroy you from this good land He has given you. And if you break the covenant of the Lord your God by worshiping and serving other gods, His anger will burn against you, and you will quickly vanish from the good land He's given you. 
Okay, so that was kind of a long passage there, but I wanted to cover all of it. Now, and, and if, if, as you continue to read, as you go into chapter 24, you'll see that he uh, restates many of, this, uh, of the, the covenantal agreements that they had made with the Lord, that God, we will serve you, we will be your people, and you will be our God. And he wanted to remind them. This is where you get that famous passage where he says, choose today who you're going to serve, but for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So anyway, that, that's kind of where it goes from here. But this was him sitting down saying, listen, I'm about to die. Things are about to change here. I want to make sure that you are ready for that. So looking at verses 2 and 3, you see that he states, I'm a very old man. You have seen everything the Lord has done for you during my lifetime. The Lord has fought for you against your enemies. Joshua begins his address to the people by giving glory to God. Joshua was a very successful leader. He'd been handpicked by Moses to be his assistant. He had been handpicked as one of the spies to go into the land and, and scout it out and see what is this land that God is sending us to. He was one of the two that God was not angry with because he'd been faithful. And he said, listen, all the other spies, they're not going to get to go into the land. But you are because you saw the promise with faith. And you believed that I could give it to you. So he had been very successful. And over the past few weeks, we've talked about the many battles that Israel went through as they began to move into their land of promise. So Joshua could have pointed back to his resume and he could have said, hey, did you, you remember this that I did and this that I did? And you remember how I led you all in this victory and that victory and all of these other things? He could have done that, but he didn't. What did he do instead? He said, remember, it was the Lord your God who fought for you. It wasn't my military genius. It wasn't that I was so, such a, a paragon of character and integrity and I led you well. No, he said, listen, it was God. He gave the glory to God. Now, it can be scary to face the new, the uncomfortable, the unknown. But how many times does God tell us not to fear just like Joshua was telling us, just like Justin was telling us at the end of the song here. We're told over and over in the Bible not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Joshua 1.9 says, Be strong and courageous, for I'm with you. Psalm 23.4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of death, I will what? Fear no evil. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, God has not given us a spirit of... That's right. John 16, 33 says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. See, it has been famously said that there are at least 365 references in the Bible that tells us not to be afraid. I had someone point out, that does that mean that, that since this is a leap year, we do get one day every four years where we get to be afraid? I don't know. Maybe that's how that works. But I don't think so. I think if you take the guideline and the principle laid out in Scripture, I think God's trying to tell us, hey, don't be a chicken. I'm in control. I've got this. So as we walk through change and we adapt to those changes and those internal transitions, these are great times to look back into our life and say, we're going to give glory to God. Yes, this change is upon me. I didn't choose this change. I'm not comfortable with this change. But look at all these other things that God has done for me in the past. Look at where he's brought me from. I mean, what Justin was saying earlier today is that you aren't that old person anymore. You know, and, and you aren't the person you were when God initially called you. Now, he meets you where you are. He doesn't expect you to get it all right, right along. 
Um, I was talking with someone earlier this week and they were talking about being frustrated because they felt like they weren't mature enough in their faith. And I said, listen, you might be such and such age years old biologically, but as a Christian, you're still very young in the faith. You're still working through these things. And so it's okay to be a little gracious. We don't expect three-year-olds to be able to drive a car or file taxes, right? We, we know that they're going to have to learn to get to that place. And yes, it's the end of January, beginning of February. I'm already thinking about taxes. I don't like it any more than you do. But it's just one of those things. It's one of those changes that Uncle Sam puts on our bank account every year. And then we have to learn to transition and adapt to that. But here's the thing. As we look back and we consider and we say, well, I faced this challenge. Did God bring me through that or not? He did. He brought you through it. It might have been harder than you expected. It might have been more difficult to adapt to that change, but he did bring you through it. How do I know he brought you through it? Because you're sitting here today. You're still alive. You're still breathing. You're still here in his house, worshiping him, lifting his name up. Or you're still here with questions saying, God, I still haven't figured this out, but I think you've got some answers for me. And so I'm going to look to you for those answers. So as we look back, we see how consistent and how faithful he has been to carry us through. And we can recognize that, listen, if I had not had the Lord, where would I be? I would have been overwhelmed. I don't know what I would have done. There are things that I look back on in my life and I say, if it had not been for the Lord, the fact that I could lean on him on the days where it's like, God, I don't have it in me. I don't have the strength. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the ability. I don't have the control of this situation. But God, you do. And so while I can't change my circumstance, I'm going to put my life into your hands and say, God, I'm yours. If you want to do this with me or that with me, I give up. I don't care. I surrender. I give you control. And he was faithful and brought me through those things. Now, as Pentecostals, we believe that we are the next stage of the Bible. See, there's no sequel to the Bible. There's no need for a sequel to the Bible because we have the first part of the story right here. The rest of the story is still playing out in our lives. The same Jesus that was in this Bible is the one that is living in our hearts. The same spirit that came and empowered the, the early church is the same spirit that comes and rests on us. The same gifts that were available to them are available to us today. You know, healing, prayer, prophecy, interpretation, uh, speaking in tongues, all of those things, miracles, healing. I think I already said that one. But either way, the point is, is that that's all still available to us. The story has not ended. Now, the, the theologians call this, uh, this story of how God interacts with us, they call it the Heilsgeschichte. And that is a fun word to say, but it means holy history. They see us as part of a continuing story of God coming and working together with us. And so the Bible tells us the first part. We already know where the ending is. We're just figuring out how do we get from where we started to where we get to finally be in heaven with our Creator, with our Savior. So we want to give glory to God, remembering all the good things that He's done for us. All right, everybody look at somebody. Look at somebody next to you and say, God's been good to me. How about you? That's right. Okay, the next step that we want to think about here is that Joshua warned them. He said, listen... You can look at all these victories we've had. You can look at all the many good things that the Lord has done for us, but the challenges are not over yet. Notice they had already moved in and they had taken control of parts of the promised land, but they had not completed their mission. 
And so he knew that challenges remained. So Joshua wanted to give them a roadmap and say, how do we make sure that you achieve the full victory and the full promise that God has prepared for you? And so he gave them a couple instructions. And he gave them a roadmap on how to win. Number one is that he told them they had to be totally obedient to the word. In verse 6, he says this, So be very careful to follow everything Moses wrote in the book of instruction. Do not deviate from it, turning either to the right or to the left. So he says, so be very careful. Now, some of us are not very careful. We're much more of a shoot-from-the-hip kind of person, right? Some of us, we're like, well, I'm just going to do it, and we'll just see how it plays out. It's either going to work or it's not, and we will adapt once we find out what happens. Others of us, we are planners. We are strategists, not strategists. Uh, We are strategists. We want to have a plan of action where we walk into it, and and so we don't want to even start the process until we have figured out how we're going to win. And that's what Moses is, or that's what Joshua is pointing out. He said, "Pay attention to what Moses instructed you." See, following God and living by His word is not easy. It's not something for the faint of heart. In fact, Jesus warns his disciples. He's like, hey, if you think you're going to follow me and it's going to be easy, let me describe to you what it's going to be like. You're going to be persecuted. People are going to hate you for my name. And guess what? You're going to need to take up your cross every day. It's one thing to say, oh, Jesus is going to die on a cross. It's another thing to say, oh, there's a cross right there. And that's my cross to carry. That's my cross. That's my burden. And we have to carry that. That's part of our journey. So there is a reason why God tells us that. That's why when we say, I am going to live by the book, I'm going to live by God's word, it's a careful decision, it's a considered decision, and it is a courageous decision that we make. When we follow everything in Mo- that Moses wrote in the book of instruction, it says follow everything, not just the parts you like, I was teasing Bailey over here before church because she had her Bible open and I saw where she had underlined some passages and made some notes in the, in the side. And I said, oh my goodness, look at you. You have, uh, you have dishonored and, and vandalized the word of the Lord. And she just rolled her eyes at me like teenagers do. Um, but I just told her, I said, just be careful. Make sure that as you're going through there and you're making your notes that you're not crossing out those verses that you don't like, right? You can make notes, but let's not just pick and choose. And so she, she at least gave me a little chuckle there and was like, I hope he goes away now. Um, but anyway, we tend to focus on the aspects of obedience that we like. We like to skip over the parts that we're uncomfortable with. And the Bible and, the, and, and history are full of examples of why it's better to do things God's way than try to figure it out ourselves. How many times can we think back even in our own lives and say, I know God told me to do X, Y, and Z, but I thought I found this little shortcut over here that would get me there, and it blows up in your face because you're not doing things the way that God has called you to do it. All right, one more time. Let's look at our neighbor. I want everybody to look at the person sitting next to you. Give them a good hard look in the eyes, all right? And ask yourself this question. Would you let that person tell you how to live your life? Why not? Are you really that much smarter than them? Do not answer that question out loud. But the thing is, is if I look at this person next to me and I'm like, who, who are you to tell me how to live my life? But I'm not any smarter than that person. I'm, I'm not any more wise than they are. And yet we, we trust our own judgment more than we would trust the judgment of a neighbor. But guess what? That my neighbor and me, we both have fallen, incomplete, incorrect, 
sometimes mistaken human understanding of what needs to happen. And yet we will trust our own judgment over the judgment of God. And so that's why we need to make sure that when we are approaching Scripture, we're not looking for confirmation that my opinion was right. We're looking at Scripture saying, God, if there is something in here and my life is not lining up with it, help me to change my life to bring it into alignment with your word and with what you're trying to do. The last thing that, that, Mo, uh, that I keep saying Moses, the last thing that Joshua says is he says, do not deviate from it. He says, don't turn aside to the right or to the left. Because here's the thing, as we are choosing and learning how to walk and how to follow Christ, Satan doesn't care whether or not you step off the path to the left or whether you step off the path to the right. All he cares about is whether or not you're off the path. And so there are many ways that we can do that. We could land in the, in the land of legalism where I've got these rules and I'm going to live by them and I'm going to judge everybody else who doesn't agree to my same set of rules as me. And then there's the other side where we just say, listen, rules don't really matter. I can do what I want because Jesus knows my heart and he, he knows that I love him. So it doesn't really matter what I do. And it doesn't matter which way you go. The, the end result is the same. You are off the path. So that's why Joshua tells them, don't deviate to the right, don't deviate to the left. Make sure you are staying and following what God has told you to do. So that is the first step. If you want to win and complete the mission that God's given you, is you've you got to live in total obedience to the Word. The second uh, warning or instruction that Joshua gives them is he says we, they needed to avoid ungodly influences. Verses 7 and 8 say this. They say, make sure that you do not associate with the other people still remaining in the land. Do not even mention the names of their gods, much less swear by them or serve them or worship them. Rather, cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done until now. Now, he, he says this here. He says, don't even mention the names of their gods. See, Joshua's telling them that these false Canaanite gods would be nothing but a stumbling block for them. It would trip them up because... See, the Israelites were one of the only people that believed that there was one God. Everybody else that lived back then, they assumed that there were many gods. There's the God of this river. There's the God of this village. You know, um, it would often talk about, you know, in the Bible, it talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's because they would even believe that there were gods of a particular family. You know, that was normal in that society. And so Joshua was trying to tell them, listen, that's not true. That's not the reality. There is one God. He's revealed himself to us. So we can't even play around. We don't need to know anything about their gods. We don't need to swear by them. We don't need to think about them. We don't need to study and see, well, well, what does your God say about this? No, we have the revelation from God and we have to stay committed to it. Joshua tells them to cling tightly to the Lord your God as you have done until now. That was an encouraging thing. He's saying, hey, listen, you have done the right thing. God told you to leave Egypt, so what did you do? You packed your bags and you left Egypt. God told you to move the camp from here to there, and so you did that. Now, they didn't do it perfectly. I mean, as you read in the book of Exodus, you see that the Israelites messed it up over and over and over and over again, which is awesome because I do the same thing. I mess up over and over and over again. So that's encouraging. But at the same time, they clung, uh, they clung faithfully to God, and we have to do the same thing. Now, there's an old saying in criminal enterprises that says this, keep your friends close, but your enemies even closer, right? But this is exactly what Christians are not to do. And that's 
hard to say because it's like, well, I love my unsaved neighbor. I love my heathen co-worker. I love my unsaved family member. But we have to be careful to not allow those people to influence our faith. Now, we can't, we can't completely cut ourselves off from everybody who's not a Christian. That's just not realistic. That's not the way the world works. But we can be careful to, to uh, limit that influence in our lives. We can choose to avoid some of those influences. And then w- the others, we can say, listen, you can have your opinion, but I'm not going to be moved by that because I have the truth. I have godly wisdom that is guiding my life. So we can choose to limit how much influence, how much power and influence has in our lives. So here's what I'll say. Christians, we are not called to become experts in cults or in heresy or in other religions. In fact, I would say that as a Christian, the only reason that you might study another religion is one to see if there was some nugget of truth that was in that religion that you could then use to point that person to Christ. You could say, hey, doesn't the Quran say this? Or didn't the Buddha say that? And that sure sounds a whole lot like what Jesus said over here. And you can use those examples to point them to Christ. But we shouldn't be committing ourselves to studying those and learning about those things because they're not helpful for our faith. Instead, we should commit ourselves to studying the Word and living by it. So Joshua understood that the people of Israel were going into a setting where they were going to be surrounded by people who did not serve the God of Israel. So he wanted to be very clear with them. Make sure that as you enter into this setting that is not going to be in alignment with what God has called us to be, guard yourself against those influences. Make sure you cling tightly to the Lord. He's brought us through so much. Don't let go now. The third reminder that he gives them in verses 14 through 16, and I'm not going to reread that whole thing, but he talks about the covenant that was made between Israel and, and, uh, and God. And he says, deep in your hearts, you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. See, Joshua asked them to look back, look back over your life and probe deep within and see if there's ever a time in your life where you could rightly accuse God and say, you were unfaithful to me, God. I asked you to do this, and you didn't do it, and so I'm angry with you. And there are a lot of people who live in that space. There are a lot of people who say, I can't be a believer. I can't be a Christian because I prayed about such and such, and God did not answer my prayer the way I asked him to. How many of you know that sometimes when you ask God to do something, the answer is no? That doesn't mean he didn't answer. It just means he didn't give you the answer you wanted. And so, you know, Joshua was saying, look back on your life and you will see that God was not unfaithful to you, even if he said the thing you're asking for is not what you need right now. That wasn't God being unfaithful. Joshua points out that not a single one of God's promises had failed. So if we think that we could have a legitimate case against God where we say, God, you didn't come through for me. God, you didn't do what I asked you to do. God, you left me hanging out there. If that's how we feel, it is far more likely that we misunderstood what God was promising us. You know, God promises us healing, but that doesn't mean we're going to have it in this life, right? And just because you've been healed once doesn't mean that you'll never get sick again. 
Uh, I'm taking a class on divine healing this week, and, and one of the first things that we did at the beginning of classes is he asked for any testimonies. Does anybody want to tell their story? Has God ever healed you or someone close to you in, in a miraculous way? And, and one gentleman, he shared a story of how when he was two years old, he became very deathly ill. Ill. In fact, the doctors told his parents, you are terminally, uh, your son is terminally ill. He's going to die. And they went, you know, the parents went to a, a revival service and, and they, he was prayed over. And the next time they went to the doctor, the doctor said, this child is perfectly healthy. And so, you know, from two years old, he has that testimony that, uh, that God had miraculously healed him. Now, that didn't mean that he never got sick again for the rest of his life. In fact, he said, I still, I have to take allergy medication every day, you know? So just the fact that I had a healing, but it wasn't complete, totally, 100% Iron Man healing, and I'll never get sick again, that doesn't deny the fact that God did heal. So sometimes we misunderstand when God promises us healing, or when God promises us health and wealth and prosperity and those kinds of things. We're not a name it, claim it denomination. We don't get to tell God what to do. We don't get to say, God, I expect there to be $3 million in my bank account before I get out of church today. If there is, that's probably a bank error and you should leave it right there. It's going to come right back out. But the point is, is that sometimes we misunderstand God and then we get mad at him, not because of what he did or didn't do, but because we misunderstood what he said to us. And so we have to be careful and make sure that we're abiding by the terms of the covenant. In another verse, Joshua says this, As surely as the Lord your God has given you the good things He promised, He will also bring disaster on you if you disobey Him. Joshua is merely repeating all of the instances and the ordinances of, of blessing that will come on them if they are obedient, and there are curses if you are disobedient. That they were a specific part of the covenant that God made with Israel. He said, listen, I will be your God. I will take care of you. I will watch over you. I will fight for you. But then you have an obligation to worship me, to forsake other gods, to, to live according to my principles. And so that was the agreement that was made between them. This is actually very common in the ancient uh, Middle East. It was called a suzerain vassal treaty. And so whenever someone approached a king and says, I will serve you and let you be my king, then there were obligations that came with that. If you're my king, I have to provide support. If you go to war, I'm in the army. If, if, if there's a famine, I'm going to contribute to making sure that there's enough food going around. And on the flip side, the king had a responsibility to, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to deal out justice in a fair manner. I'm going to make sure and protect our community from other people. There was obligations back and forth. And so that was the type of covenant that people in those days understood. So that was the type of covenant that God entered into. You notice that when, when Israel moved into the promised land, everybody else already had kings. And God said, you don't need a king because I'm your king. I'm the one that I'm going to take care of you. You're going to serve in my army. I'm going to be the one that gives you blessing and make sure that you have enough to eat and that your children are safe and all of those things. He said, you don't need a king because I'm your king. Now, later on, Israel would say, we don't like this arrangement. We want a king so that we can be like everybody else. And that turned out not so well for them, right? You know, they had a couple good kings. They had David. They had Solomon. They had some, uh, some others that followed God faithfully. But there were a whole lot more kings that messed it up. There were a whole lot of other kings where it's like, you would have been better off if you'd just stuck with the Lord as your king. You would have been in a much better place. But here's the thing that we can rely on. We don't live under that same kind of covenant that the Israelites lived under. Because here's the thing. When there was an obligation between the king and the vassal, 
There was also a curse if you broke the, 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 the terms of that process, you know, or that, that promise. If, if you said, I will serve you, and when the enemy comes, I'll be in the army, and then you didn't show up, there was a curse placed on you for that. You were unfaithful. You know, if, if, uh, if you did not pay all the taxes that you were supposed to be, you were cursed. And that was the way they formed these treaties. And we don't do that today. We live under a new covenant. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. But therefore, in Jesus, we, don't know, we no longer experience a faithfulness to curse us as Israel knew it. We live under a new covenant where God's faithfulness is not to curse us when we break the rules. God's faithfulness is to correct us like a loving parent, like a child, like a parent and child relationship. And we do experience, though, a lack of blessing when we choose to step outside of living things according to God's purposes. Uh, Justin, if you and the praise team want to join us, we're going to wrap this up. We're getting closer to the end. Uh, but I'm going to turn to a new passage in, Jer uh, in Joshua. In fact, we're going to look at the last couple verses because it just kind of caps off this whole series on Joshua that we've been talking about. And so Joshua had been preparing them for the change that was coming. He'd been preparing them for the transition. And here's what it says in Joshua chapter 24, verses 29 through 33. It says this, After this, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land that he had been allocated at Timnath-serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And the people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, those who had personally experienced all that the Lord had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the plot of land that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar for Hamor for 100 pieces of silver. The land was uh, located in the territory allocated to the descendants of Joseph. Eleazar, son of Aaron, also died. He was buried in the hill country of Ephraim, in the town of Gibeah, which had been given to his son Phinehas. Why did we read this? We see that there was not only a passing of the torch from Joshua, but Eleazar, the high priest, he passed away as well. A new generation had to rise up and take their place. And here's the thing. It was the end of an era. Letting go is easier when you have prepared for a change or a transition. When we, when we are ready for what is coming next, maybe we don't know everything that's going to happen, but we say, I know something's going to change, so I want to position myself well so that when that change comes and whatever it looks like, I'm ready to step into that new reality that God has prepared for me. We cannot anticipate every changing situation. Um, it's just the, the, the fact of life. We don't know. We can get a phone call. It can be unexpected, and all of a sudden your life has drastically changed. But there are many times when we could have foreseen what was coming if we had not been either unwise or intentionally blind to them. How many of you are budgeters in this, in this uh, room? You like to keep a budget? You like to keep a, a, a track of where your money's going? I do too, right? I like to, to have a little margin, a little cushion in my budget. I call it my rainy day fund. Why do I call it that? Because I know eventually a rainy day is going to come. It's going to be one of those gray, gross, nasty days. And you're out on the side of the highway changing a tire. It's a bad day. And I want to make sure I got enough money in the, the account where I can go get a new tire when I need one. That sort of thing. 
So you prepare, even though I didn't know when I was going to get that flat tire. I didn't know it was going to come on the grossest day in history and there was going to be a blizzard or whatever. You know, you don't know that that's going to come, but you do know that something is not going to go to plan. We do know that not everything works out the way that we think it's going to. So don't be unwise and stretch yourself so thin that when God calls you into a new place, you can't do it. What if God told you, I, I have a new career opportunity for you, but it is in Vail, Colorado. Now, half of you would be like, hallelujah, I love the mountains and I, I like to ski and I'm going. But then you look in the bank account and you're like, oh, how am I going to pay for the moving truck to get me from Louisville, Kentucky to Vail, Colorado? You can't do what God has called you to do because you didn't provide enough space to be able to do it. Now, I hope none of you move to Vail, Colorado unless you take me with you, right? But the point is, is you prepare and you make sure that you are not stretched so thin that when God says, be obedient, how many of us see someone from time to time and it's like, man, that person's really in need. I would love to bless them, but I have spent all of my money and in fact, I'm paying on past debts. And so I don't have the, the capacity to be able to bless that person the way I want to. That's a terrible place to be because God put that desire in your heart to bless that person. But because of past unwise decisions you made, you're not in a place to walk into that blessing and to be a blessing to others. So we have to be wise we have to anticipate things that are coming and we cannot put on blinders and be like, nope, nope, nope. Life is going to work out exactly how I planned. I'm going to have 2.3 children. I'm going to make $347 million. Everything is going to be perfect. That's not the way life works. So here's the thing. Whether we are gifted athletes, how many of you here still live in those high school days? You got those trophies. Admit it. Anybody got a high school trophy on the mantle? Maybe one of those little ribbons that you got? Maybe you weren't an athlete. Maybe it was the, uh, the, the, the what do they call it, the, the critical thinking team or the trivia team. I don't know what it is, but some of us, we live in those old, uh, those old glories. But whether we were gifted athletes or whether you're one of those people that has two left feet, a bad knee, and bunions, we are all running a race called life, and it is a relay race. How do I know it's a relay race? Because you weren't the first human alive. Somebody passed it off to you, and you're going to pass it off to somebody else as well. So whether we're prepared for it or not, this is a relay race. We don't get to run forever. You know, it's, it is appointed unto man once to die. And here's the other thing. It's not just our lifespan that is limited. Every role, every position, every job, every capacity that you serve in is a temporary appointment. That's just the truth. I don't know what company you work for, but that company probably existed before you were ever hired. And they're probably going to exist way after you're gone, unless maybe you embezzle all the money and they close down for bankruptcy. I don't know. But the point is, is that, you know, we are fulfilling a purpose while we're here. And we will transition many times in our life. There will be many changes that come. There will be many times where we have to adapt to a new normal. So we have to understand that and be ready and willing to let go because there are going to be times when God says, okay, it's time to hand me that baton, right? Because I need to give it to this person over here. And we say, but I don't want to let go. This is my baton. I like this baton. It fits my hand perfectly. In fact, I've worn finger grooves in it. I've held on to it so tight over the years. This is my baton, God. Don't take this from me. But sometimes he needs us to let go of this one so that we can grab the next one that is coming. Anybody who's ever watched a relay race, you know that there is a very small period of time 
where the runner that is finishing his leg is meeting the, the runner that is starting his leg, and they have to very quickly get in sync with each other, and they have to know, am I handing you this baton on the upswing, or am I handing it to you on the downswing? And if you fumble that transition, if you fumble that change, then it can lose the whole race for you. So that is what I wanted to talk to you today, that we are going to face change. That, that was our bottom line. Change is inevitable. It's going to come whether we want it or not. But it is possible to face those transitions from a posture and a position of faith. How do we face transition with faith? We give our glory to God. We say, God, you've brought me through it so far. You've been so good to me. Look at all the things you've done in my life. It might not have been perfect. There might have been things that I've had to deal with in my life that I did not anticipate and I did not want to deal with. But God, you brought me through them anyway. So we give glory to God. We say, God, it is by your grace that I'm standing here today. The second thing we do is we plan for the challenges ahead. Let's not pretend like there's not going to be anything else negative that comes along. That's just the nature of life. At one point, our bodies are going to betray us. At one point, our kids are going to move away. At one point, we're not going to be able to play pickup basketball anymore without being in, a, in the hospital bed for three weeks. Just change is going to happen. But we prepare for the challenges ahead. And then the last thing we do is we rest in the promises of the covenant relationship that we have entered into with God. We have given ourselves to God. Those of you who have made a decision to follow Christ, you have turned your life over and you have said, God, I'm going to serve you. It's no longer what I want. That's what Jesus prayed, right? He said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Do I think that, God, uh, that, that Jesus really needed to say that out loud to God? No, I think God already knew what was in his heart. So why did Jesus say that out loud? Jesus wanted those disciples to hear it. They wanted him to remember. They wanted, he wanted them to remember how he prayed and how he faced the most difficult day of his life. When Jesus was going through it, what did he say? He said, not my will, Lord. Yes, Lord. Okay. All right, so if the prayer team would come and join me right now, um, as I was thinking about how to close this service, <laughs> it was not with lightning from above. <laughs> but I felt the Lord leading me to open the altars because here's the thing, there are some of us in this room who we are waiting on a change. We have circumstances in our life that need to change. And we've been asking the Lord, we're saying, God, I need you to intervene in this situation. It might be a financial need that we have. It might be a physical need that we have. It might be healing in a relationship that we have. But there's, there are people in this room, I'm one of them, where we need, uh, we need something, some sort of circumstance to change. And so this altar is open where you can come to the Lord and you can get one of these prayer warriors to agree with you and say, we're going to lift this need up to the Lord. We're going to say, God, change this situation. Move in it. I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, God, but I'm going to trust that you're going to do it well. And so, God, I need you to change this situation. There are also those in this room who are going through a change, but you are struggling with the transition. You're saying, God, I'm stepping into a new normal. I'm stepping into a new situation, and I can't change that, but I'm struggling with it. I'm, it it's keeping me up at night. I, I'm, I'm worn down from dealing with it. I'm, I'm having trouble adapting to this new change. And so if that's you, I want you to come down to this altar because the Holy Spirit will be there with you, will comfort you, and will build you up. What does it say? We don't have to do things by our own strength, but
but the power of the Spirit will rise up within you and allow you to face any challenge that you have to face. And we can get our minds and our hearts in alignment with what God is trying to do with our lives. And the last thing I want to pray for is some of you see a change coming down the road. You know it's coming. You see that, that God is about to take you into a new area in your life. But you need to start preparing yourself in the here and now. You need to start saying, God, i got to get all my ducks in a row because I already know where you're taking me. And to get from here to there, it's going to require some things. It's going to require some sacrifices. It's going to require some courage. It's going to require some preparation. And so if that's you today, I want you to come forward because the Holy Spirit not only empowers us to be able to deal with whatever we're facing, but He also gives us guidance. He gives us wisdom. And we don't have to figure it all out or have all the answers on our own. We can look to Him. Jesus says, don't worry about what to say because when the time comes, what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit will let you know what you need to say and what you need to do. So those are the three opportunities that are before you in this altar today. Whether you need a change, whether you're struggling with a change, or whether you're preparing for a change, you can come and you can ask the Lord and He will get you through this. Because change is inevitable, but transition can be done with faith.